Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Deuteronomy, chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 20. Uh, If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 152. So Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11. Uh, Earlier this year, I uh, managed to accomplish a goal that I have been working towards for a couple years. Uh, I passed my wellness exam for our insurance company. In an effort to promote healthy living and less expenses for them, our insurance company has a program where they will give you back some of your money if you uh, pass their health standards. So if you you pass, you you get a decent sum back. And if you don't, well, you get the chance to earn that back by uh, completing one of their approved programs and trying to get to where you need to be. So each time we have done this, I have just missed that mark. And so I've had to do the program. And it's really not all that bad. The, the program is it's a good resource, and I've seen good results. And by the end of the program, I'm almost always within those health standards that they want. The problem is that after I finish the program, there's about three or four months before I go and do my weigh-in again. And uh, I always find that after hitting that initial goal, it's easy to sort of let my foot off the gas and not be so diligent about it. Uh, Now, it's not that the habits themselves are hard to keep so much as it is I find that with anything, once you've completed something, once you've gone to the effort of disciplining yourself and you've met that goal, once you've met it, it is incredibly easy to grow content. And once you've grown content, it's very easy to slip out of the discipline and start compromising with old ways. So for at least two years in a row, I have gotten where I needed to be, started to coast, and then slowly started to creep back to where I was. And then and when it's time for the assessment, I have just missed the goal. So one time it was by a point of a percent. But it happened. So discipline, I think we'd also, discipline is hard. We all like to feel full. We all like to splurge and indulge ourselves. Friday, pies and praise, I did lots of indulgence. We especially do that when we have succeeded at something. A full heart can easily transform into a forgetful heart, undoing everything we have worked to achieve. History shows us that that oftentimes great men are undone by their own success. The destruction of many of the world's kingdoms and empires typically has begun from within them. Like the rich man in Jesus' parable, who took the comfort of his riches and his prosperity, looked at them and said, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. We are far too easily lulled into a false sense of security, forgetting that in a moment, all of that can be taken from us. Success is sometimes the enemy of progress. Fullness may easily lead us into forgetfulness, and forgetfulness is the first step towards faithlessness. For that reason, the Bible is very careful to instruct us to be on our guard in times of fullness. We are told to live as strangers and sojourners in this world, remembering that this is not ultimately our home. So while we give thanks to God for all of the great blessings he richly bestows on us here, while we are meant to enjoy them for his glory, we must remember that we were not made to fill ourselves with those things. We were made to fill ourselves not with the gifts themselves, but with the gift giver. We, we, as believers, we belong to that great heavenly city where sin and sorrow and death are no more. 
And so as we make our way through this world, we must be careful not to take up residence in it, not to become artificially filled by it, lest we grow lazy and forgetful that the riches that have been reserved for us by Christ with all the saints are heavenly. Now, our passage this morning is a warning that is meant to equip us for how to face the threat that is posed to us by fullness and good success. I believe that this particular passage is especially relevant for us, especially for Americans living in a day and age where convenience and comfort are the highest valued things. Moses helps us to understand not only the danger of this condition, but he also arms us for this fight against an unassumingly powerful enemy by deepening our affections for God. So my hope is that this sermon will will help awaken you to the danger of having a sleepy heart and that it will also inspire you to take up arms and face the dangers that are posed to us by the fullness that our flesh craves and that as such it will renew your strength to follow closely after Christ. So that is what I hope that we will go from this place with. So let's begin by reading our text. If you will, please stand with me as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at verse 11 and then reading through verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rocks, who fed you in the the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish." Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of this text, really, it's, it's, not, it's not a short one, but I think this is an important one for us. It is a lesson. Be on your guard against dangers of fullness and success. Sharpen your resolve and press on to the greater goal of knowing God and being satisfied in him. In our time this morning, what I want to do is unpack three threats that fullness poses to us, and I also want to equip you to face those threats. So first, we want to look at the danger of forgetfulness, the danger of forgetfulness. Second, we want to look at the danger of overestimating ourselves. And third, we want to look at the danger of wandering eyes. So the danger of forgetfulness, the danger really of pride and overestimating ourselves, and finally the danger of wandering eyes and lust. 
Well, the life of a faithful Christian is lived in a certain kind of paradox. A paradox is something that sounds contradictory, but really it is not. In one sense, he or she lives with a deep sense of satisfaction that comes from knowing God and experiencing the deep riches of his grace and of his love. At the same time, a faithful Christian is never satisfied because they are not home yet. And so they live in longing to take their place in another world. Now, that is not to say that a faithful Christian does not attend to the duties and the responsibilities that are given to us in this life. We are not people living with our heads in the clouds. We are not out of touch with reality, but we long, in a sense, for a greater reality when the mortal will put on immortality. So for a Christian, it is a deep privilege and a joy to live in the world that God has made, to enjoy and savor his creation. But we always do so longing for the day when that creation will be freed to be what it was always meant to be, when our dwelling will be in the direct presence of God. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ with hearts that are satisfied in him, the Christian is a person who lives in perfect peace and contentment in all and every circumstance, and yet looks with a longing, restless heart for home and for the eternal. We are, in a sense, both at rest and at work as we rest in what Christ has done for us and we work doing what God has called us to do. The the great threat that fullness poses to believers really has to do with causing us to look away from eternity, to corrupt our cares, to be about shallow, temporary things. And that brings us to consider our first point this morning, the danger of forgetfulness. Now, as we look at this passage, we see Moses spends really the vast majority of it warning the Israelites not to forget the Lord and not to forget his commands. So starting in verse 11, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. This is a recurring theme in the book of Deuteronomy. And the frequency with which Moses uh, warns and charges Israel to remember the law, the covenant, and his teaching should be an indication to us about how great a danger forgetfulness really is. There is always a danger that difficult times may overwhelm us and make us doubt or forget God and his faithfulness. Uh, Fear will cause you to do a great many things you would not do otherwise. Moses has already addressed the dangers of that in chapter 7. But there's also a danger that we may fall into forgetfulness and faithlessness in times of plenty. And that is the focus of Moses' concern here in chapter 8. In verses 12 through 14, he looks forward to the days ahead when the people are going to take their place in the paradise that God had prepared for them, when they have eaten and been made full, when they have built good houses for themselves and their families, when their herds multiply, when their wealth does also. The concern here is that once they are filled with all these good things that God is giving them, that their hearts will then become sluggish and their minds will become clouded much like that feeling you get after you've been eating a Thanksgiving feast and you've had a little too much turkey and go sit on the couch. Moses is concerned that the people 
will begin to relax and forget God and forget to live by the commands of the covenant that he made with them after they had been made full. Moses is right to be concerned about this. Uh, We need only look a little bit further to the book of Judges to find example after example of how the, the nation, once they settled into the land, once they filled themselves with all these good things, once they were able to put down their swords and pick up their plows, they began to drift from God. They forgot to honor him. They forgot to keep his commands. They began to make concessions to their obedience. All of that led to their being disciplined until they'd they would cry out from the Lord to save them. And, and he, he would, he would raise up a judge who would bring them back and deliver them. And then for, we would, we'll see in the book of Judges that they would serve God again for a time, but eventually they would slip back into old ways and it would all happen again. And so there's this recurring theme in the book of Judges, and there was no king in Israel, showing time and time again how Israel was faithless to God in spite of his faithfulness to them in the land. In some ways... Fullness poses a greater risk to our faithfulness than times when we are in need or when we are in times that challenge us. Fullness tends to lead us into faithlessness because it makes us forgetful. It loses our urgent, we lose our urgency when our bellies are full. Our, our, our ears become deaf to God's commands and our hearts become dull in our resolve and our commitment to God because when we're full, It's just hard to feel the urgency of obedience. It is easy to feel sluggish in our fight against sin. Moses has already brought up Israel's time in the wilderness, but to make his point about the danger of fullness a little stronger, he takes us back there again. In verses 14 through 16, he says, Then your heart, he's talking about when you're in the land, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good, to do you good in the end. If we look at the wilderness in Moses' description of it, it's very clear. This, This was not a place you would take a vacation. This was a hard place. It was full of hardships and dangers. It put Israel to the test. It humbled them. Whether it was the fiery serpents that came into the camp after they sinned, or it was the scorpions and the natural dangers of the place, whether it was the scorching heat of the sun, the lack of water or the lack of food, the wilderness was a trial, a crucible that pressed the nation on every side. It humbled them. It showed Israel that they did not have the strength in and of themselves to do any of this. But it also showed them the faithfulness of God, his steadfast love to them. God did not send Israel into the wilderness by themselves. He did not abandon them. Rather, he went with them. And as he did, he prepared them and brought them out of the wilderness as a disciplined, committed people who were ready to go in and receive his blessings. They came out of the wilderness with lean, motivated hearts that were eager to serve God and to do whatever he had commanded them to do. That was when they were ready and prepared to receive what God had for them. The concern that Moses has is that the lesson they learned in the wilderness will be lost on them once their bellies are full with the good blessings that God had reserved for them. 
that they would forget to rely on the Lord in the promised land the way they learned to trust him in the wilderness. The Puritan pastor Richard Allen observes how easily we forget God's faithfulness to us when we emerge from the crucible of affliction. How quickly, he says, the soul that has prospered during the winter becomes so choked up with weeds when summer arrives. Friends, we, we must see the danger that fullness poses to us, how it can make us forgetful and lead us away from God into disobedience. And we must fight that threat by remembering that we are just as dependent on God's grace in times of plenty as we are when we face times of need. We must refuse to become satisfied with easy, convenient things. We must not look on the things we have done for God in the past as trophies of our own making, but rather as the fruit of his work in us. And we must fight against complacency by remembering that as long as we draw breath, his work in us, preparing us for the riches of heaven, is not complete. Forgetting what lies behind, we must, in the words of Paul, strain forward to what lies ahead for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is so easy in times of fullness and plenty to make fullness and plenty replacements for God. It is so easy to get to set our hearts on the benefits of God's generous kindness to us instead of setting our hearts on him. It is good and it is right to enjoy God's good gifts with hearts of thanksgiving and praise to him. But we should, I think, in a sense, always live with a proverbial knife to our throat to ensure that we do not overindulge ourselves with the good gifts so that we become lethargic and slow in our obedience to him. The topic of fasting rarely comes up in churches, especially Baptist ones. We talk more about potlucks than fasting. But the reality is that fasting has uh, a real place in the life of a Christian. That, that Although God gives us these good things, sometimes it is good for us to keep ourselves back from those things for a time so that we may pursue him fuller. So don't count that as an important tool God has given us. Fasting is something that Jesus himself did, something that we see Paul doing, something we see Paul actually advocating to the church for people to do, to, to take a break from something good for a time, to pursue God fuller, to develop a sharper affection for him, to fight fullness so that we do not become full with temporary lesser treasures, but that we sharpen our desires for greater things. The key to facing plenty and need, and Paul makes a point in Philippians 4 that it is something that needs to be faced. The key to facing plenty, the key to facing need, the key to to facing times of ease and times of hardship is to live by grace in the pursuit of God, to make our hearts full in Christ. It is his power working in us that makes us content and steadfast when the sun is shining and when the rain is falling. God has a greater purpose for his people than earthly prosperity. He has given us his own son, and through his work on the cross, he has given us an eternal inheritance in himself. That is why the Christian can be simultaneously both satisfied in any and every circumstance and also never satisfied in this world. Our hearts belong to Christ, Our desire is for that heavenly city to take our place before the throne of God. We will be satisfied with what God gives us here, but we will never be fully satisfied until we are there with him. 
So when our eyes and our minds are set on heaven, then our hearts will not grow roots here on the earth. The Bible instructs us that even as we receive every good thing God gives us in thankfulness to him, that we ought to live as sojourners, as exiles, as strangers, abstaining from the passions of the flesh that set in when we get distracted and forgetful. Citing Abraham as our example, the author of Hebrews reminds us how though Abraham lived in the land that God said he was going to give to him and to his descendants, he did not receive the land himself. And then he tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, a designer whose designer and builder is God. He goes on to say, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. That is how we fight fullness and the danger of forgetfulness. That is how we fight faithlessness with a desire, a deep desire for God. That is how we develop lean hearts that are set on a greater glory than what this world can offer us. Now, there is another danger that we face in times of fullness, and that is the danger of overestimating our own selves. Three times in this chapter, Moses tells the people how God worked to humble them through what they went through in the wilderness. Now, that's important because although Israel had to suffer in the wilderness as a curse for their rebellion, they did not come out the other side because of their own strength or ability. God multiplied them in the wilderness. He actually worked in them for their good, even though it was a a hard time. Every time they came up against something that threatened to kill or destroy them, God showed his power and his faithfulness to save them. When they were hungry, he gave them the bread of angels. When they needed water, he gave them water out of the flinty ground. And Paul actually goes on to tell us that that picture there, when, when Moses spoke to the rock and then when, when he first struck the rock and then was called to speak to the rock, that that rock was Christ, a picture of how God had, provides his grace to us. When armies came to attack Israel, God went to war for them and gave them victory. When the Israelites fell into sin, he gave them forgiveness and salvation. God's power and God's grace is clearly revealed in how he cared for Israel in the wilderness. But in the same way that times of plenty can make God's people forget him and his ways, times of plenty can also make us forget that we owe everything to his grace. In verses 17 and 18, Moses says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, notice this is a secret musing, that little switch that flips to think, Ah, I am pretty, pretty cool. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. Mm. Moses says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now, as we look at this, the issue here is really pride. Everything that Israel got to enjoy their relationship with God, the wealth of the nations that they conquered, the cities, the homes, the herds, the flocks, the silver, the gold. It was all a gift of God's grace. I think that really is apparent when we look at the way that God brought Israel out of Egypt, how he defended them against Pharaoh, 
It's really obvious in the way that he led them through the wilderness and fed them while they were there. It is obvious in the way that he gave them water from the rock and the way that he met with them at Sinai and did not consume them but gave them his law and his covenant. But God knew that as Israel settled into the land, once they got comfortable, once they filled their bellies with the good food that he was setting before them, once they settled down in the peace he secured for them, there would come a day when they would look at everything he had given them, everything he had blessed them with, and they would start to think pretty highly of themselves. He knew that they would begin to take credit for everything that they enjoyed, and they would begin to forget that it was a gift from him. They would start to look at the land, and they would start to look at it as if it was theirs because they earned it. They'd look at that armor hanging on the walls and the trophies of battle that they took with themselves, and they'd begin to trust themselves. Now Moses is not taking anything away from the fact that the way God was going to give them the land was through conquest. Israel is going to have to be obedient and go to war. They were going to have to go into battle. They were going to have to fight. But the strength of Israel's armies was never in the sharpness of their swords or the strength of their spears. The the strength of Israel was in the Lord their God. God was giving them the land. They did not take it for themselves. They won because God was with them. The credit belonged to him. And so Moses is very careful to remind the Israelites, don't forget this. Don't overestimate yourselves. There's a certain kind of presumptive arrogance that can settle down in the heart of a person when they enjoy good success. When we allow ourselves to grow satisfied in our circumstances, we may easily begin to think, that these circumstances and the things we enjoy are the work of our own hands. So we begin to develop a haughty spirit and a prideful heart. We develop a false sense of security because we look at the things we've done and we think to ourselves, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I am strong. We begin trusting in our own ability, blind to the, to the fact that on our own we are in fact weak. We all know how distasteful, arrogant people are. But the Lord declares open warfare against the prideful. His eyes, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 28, are on them to bring them down. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant spirit, Psalm 101, verse 5 says, I will not endure. Six things the Lord hates, says Proverbs 6, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You see, God considers a haughty heart with hatred the same way as he looks at the one who, kills in, who sheds innocent blood. Pride is a terrible sin. A prideful heart is a usurping heart that steals glory from God and makes itself ripe for destruction. We can all think about King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who despite warnings from God, looked out at his kingdom one day and said to himself, himself, is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while those words were on his lips, 
His kingdom was taken from him, and he was driven mad, and he ate grass like an ox in the field, and his hair grew out to be like eagle's feathers, and his body was wet with the dew of the field until he learned that the Most High rules kingdoms and the affairs of men, and he gives them to whom he wishes. Friends, pride is a destroyer. It is the height of wickedness and the seedbed of every other sin. So we must be careful because when our hearts are full, we are ready to fall into the trap of forgetfulness the same way that Solomon did, who though he was the wisest of men and the richest of kings, fell into rebellion and his kingdom was torn from him. The key to fighting pride is to remember that all that we have, not some of it, not just what you prayed for, all of it, the strength of our hands, the knowledge of our minds, the resources that we have, the resolution of our hearts, our homes, our money, everything is a gift from God. Naked we entered the world and naked we will return. We are but dust. We are weak. We owe it all to God. And that, it turns out, is actually the boast of every believer. The boast of every Christian is not in what we have done, but in what Christ has done for us. He has filled us with a greater glory than the work of our hands or the accomplishment of our lives can, save, can get for us. He has filled us with himself. He has taken the loveless and made us lovely through his blood on the cross. So Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Part of facing the danger of fullness is to enjoy what we have been given to the glory of Christ. To remember that whatever blessings on our lives, they exist ultimately for God and they have been given to us by God to be stewarded and enjoyed to the praise of Him. And in so doing, we will maintain a humble heart and resist this danger of overestimating ourselves. And that brings us to the third danger the times of fullness pose to us, the danger of wandering eyes, the danger really of lust. Challenging times tend to tighten the belt. They strengthen the grip. They harden the muscle. When you go through hard times, it forces you to think about what really matters. Whereas times that are hard tend to sharpen our focus and make us more desperate to depend on God, in times of ease, it seems that our focus tends to wander. Our resolution tends to wane, and that leaves us very vulnerable to temptation and desire. Isn't it strange how prosperity tends towards lust? How many movie stars, how many celebrities, professional athletes, pop icons are out there who can say they are truly happy? They have everything their heart could ever want that this world could offer them but still they want more, more followers, more money, more honors, more prestige. They have every earthly treasure, and yet it doesn't satisfy them. They just get more and more twisted. Earthly prosperity is not always a blessing. It is not. Sometimes it is a curse. Riches are a dangerous thing because, as we're told, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There is a reason Jesus says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In verses 19 through 20, Moses warns the people to be on guard 
not to allow themselves uh, in times of fullness to fall into the folly of lusting after false gods. He says, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you, will sh- you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So Moses knew that after the people settled into the land and they were filled with all the good blessings he was giving them, that they would face certain temptation, that as they looked out from their comfortable homes on the nations that were around them, they would begin to envy them and they would begin to want to look like them. Why would they want to be like them? Well, for the same reason that you and I desire to have the things of the world around us. We have this sinful nature in us that lusts after evil, that wants to have the benefits of a righteous, a right relationship with God and our sin too. The Israelites were no different, and although they received the promised land from God, although they had Moses' warning, the temptation to want to look like the world, to have success as the world counts success, was going to come. And so Moses is warning them, don't give in. Don't forget. Don't let your eyes wander and desire what the wicked have, because in the end, that lust will consume you and destroy you. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Psalm 73. If you've ever read it, you'll know it was written by a man named Asaph, who was the choir director or the worship leader for Israel. And in Psalm 73, he writes about how he was, he was almost led astray into this, this lust, this desire. He talks about how he struggled confessing that he had become envious of the life that the wicked seemed to have. The wicked, he said, have no apparent problems. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't hunger. They don't deal with trouble. They scoff and they speak with malice, and yet no consequences ever seem to come their way. They use violence and they oppress the weak, and no one does anything to them. And Asaph says, it's like they always are getting away with it. And then he looks at his own life and he says, He looks at all the trouble that he has endured, and he says, For nothing I have kept my hands blameless. What good is it in being upright? I haven't received nothing but suffering and rebuke. But then in verses 16 and 17, he says that when he went to the house of the Lord, he saw the end of the wicked. He saw that though they seemed to enjoy their lives and have riches and every advantage, though their their apparent success is really how God was setting them up for destruction. Like a dream that is forgotten as soon as you wake up, so the wicked are. They are here today and they are blown away by the wind to be forgotten tomorrow. But God is with those who put their hope in him. His hand on them is on them to guide them. And so Asaph concludes his psalm by saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The reason I love that psalm is because it is so real. It is so easy to look out on the world and to say, where, God, where is justice? Why do the wicked get away with it? Why do they live in big homes? Why do they, as they oppress the people around them, no one is able to touch them? Why do these politicians get away with things? Why why do these celebrities have no one checking them? They just get more and more influence. 
And then Asaph says, go to the house of the Lord and see the way that God deals with his people, how he holds them up and destroys the wicked by giving them in to their lusts. The way that we fight against the danger of lust is by satisfying ourselves in God, by desiring nothing in heaven or on earth the way we desire him. It is by seeing that although the wicked seem to prosper today, they are in fact destroyed in a breath, that their riches are nothing to be envied by those who have received God himself. The way of the wicked is folly. It is flashy poison, and it has nothing to offer us in the end but death. Do not fall prey to Lady Folly's call. In her beauty and her style, she will make her appeal to you and promise you the world. little indulgence here, a little fun there. But her intent, make no mistake, is to destroy you. Her feet go down to death, even to Sheol. Moses' warning is clear. God alone can satisfy our hearts. The way to fight lust is not simply to empty ourselves of desire, so much as it is to enlarge our desires, to be filled and satisfied in the glory of the eternal God. Brothers and sisters, you, you don't have to look hard at our world to see the danger of prosperity. As we conclude this morning, I want to point you to the warning that Moses has given us. We have so much to give God thanks about, and yet there is always a real danger posed to us that we may forget him and forget his commands, forget that he has called us to run the race of this life with endurance, never being satisfied with temporary treasures, but rather pressing on in strength and endurance, casting aside anything that would slow us down so that we may, may win the prize set before us, that we may run as Christ ran the race of his life, relying on his grace. God has called us to remember that all we are and all we ever hope to be is a gift from him, which is why he is worthy of our worship and our sold-out heart as we entrust ourselves and our future to him. And finally, God calls us to resist the allure of, fool of foolishness that tells us to invest our lives in temporary treasures in the world around us. And instead, let us drink deeply of Christ. Let us find great satisfaction in knowing him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning it, it, we recognize that it is hard sometimes to see the danger of fullness. Lord, Lord we, we, there's, it's within us. We desire convenience. And Lord, in your grace, sometimes you give that to us. You have given that to us in many ways. But Lord, we also recognize that even as we may desire that, there are great dangers in that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hold us fast in Christ, that we would look on the majesty of, of King Jesus and we would not be satisfied in anything less. Lord, help us to live not for the treasures of this world, but for the treasure of, of the kingdom of heaven. And as we do, Father, I pray that, that if you call us to sacrifice or if you call us, if you grant us good things, whatever, whatever your hand has for us, Lord, we pray that we would have the right heart, a heart that is insulated to our circumstances because it is so full of King Jesus. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us in this as we walk this road, that we would turn neither to the right nor to the left, but that we would walk the path that Christ has set before us. And that as we do so, your grace would be manifest. 
And I pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.